Welcome to episode 154, where on this episode we debate whether it's Professor X or Magneto's worldview about whether this is going to be a good episode of the Campus Comics cast or not. All right, I don't know who's on whose side, but irregardless, I'm Scott Reed and I'm joined on this episode by... Mike Atchison, a.k.a. And team Magneto. <laughs> and Chad Schubert. <laughs> Are you Sorry, not going to be team Professor X, Chad? No, I'll be team no. Magneto. I'll okay. be X, yeah, I'll be Professor Okay, X. all right. <laughs> and I'll be I'll be the verses that sits between okay. the there you go. Uh, <laughs> this is of course the official podcast for Muddy Monster Comics, located at fourteen twenty two Walnut Street in Murfreesboro, Illinois. And I guess we all got to see Ant Man, uh, Quantum Mania, and I'm embarrassed to say, like up until I don't know, like after the second trailer, it was that long before I realized that Ant Man was in the words quantum mania. So, you yeah. know, you got quantum Q-U-A-N-T, and then mania, M-A-N. I didn't realize uh, that for a little while. I didn't either. It Still didn't. Right I, didn't my head. <laughs> I didn't notice until the ending credits or the very end of the movie where they sort of zoomed in or zoomed out, and you could mm. see they emphasize the Ant-Man part of quantum mania. And I'm like, oh, yeah. well, that's clever, yeah. kind oh, of, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that that flew over their heads then, so. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Wasn't there. But I got to see it last Thursday night, opening night. Uh, when did you guys see it? I saw it I seen it on Sunday, yeah. Sunday? Okay. Oh, so no, not... I seen it Saturday. Sorry. Saturday. Okay. All right. So I guess I don't know who wants to say what they thought about it real quick. We're not going to get deep dive into it, but. Uh, I don't know. Rocks, paper, scissors, anybody? <laughs> okay, I'll just go. So somebody yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go. Right, yeah. So I actually liked it. Okay. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it was good as the previous two Ant-Man movies. Um, I still really like the second one quite a bit. I like the first two. The first one was kind of a surprise. It's like a gardens of the galaxy type surprise for the first one. Right. And then the second one, uh, Evangeline Lilly and, uh, the actress who played ghost, I forgot what her name is, uh, really carried that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one was a little too CGI heavy for me. Um, it, uh, and it, fortunately it used those CGI and CGI characters for the comedic effect instead of taking it out on the characters, the main characters, which I, which I actually appreciated, but, um, I thought it was solid, not great. Definitely not in the upper echelon of Marvel movies, but I am super excited moving forward, uh, for Jonathan majors as Kang, what we're going to see from him in these, uh, upcoming MCU movies. So, uh, yeah. Well, we might as well go in order of the the order we watched it. So I'll go next. Uh, <laughs> I was I I wouldn't call it it was serviceable, but I would not call it good at all. I I, I had pretty high hopes for it going in. I thought the the trailers were pretty good, but a few of the, the I agree with you. I enjoyed the first two Ant-Man movies much better. The the, the some of the some of the like the coyness of uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Um, I forget her name now of being of uh, Janet. Van Dyne. To, yes. Janet Van Dyne of not wanting to, you know, say what happened to her in the quantum realm all that time. I mean, we just heard that over and over her being yeah. reluctant to say it. I'm like, okay, we get it. right. Just fill your guts. Mm-hmm. They, they overplayed that a little bit. I mean, it's a good superhero movie. I mean, if you like superheroes, you're not going to be disappointed, but I think the bar is set sort of high over the last few years. And 
it's hard for a lot of these movies to kind of meet the same or get the same reaction um, with new movies. And the CGI was, I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about how good or bad CGI is, but I felt like that's all you had was CGI because you're in the quantum verse, quantum realm. It was sort of like overstimulating at times and like, man, but then again, some of the, the alien life forms were kind of cool, but it was also sort of tropey. Uh-huh. Uh, Jonathan Majors was the biggest, if not sole, redeeming quality of the movie. I thought as an actor, he he's he's very convincing as a megalomaniac. Uh-huh. That's you know, com- he's got charisma. He can talk people into things and then turn around and just stab you in the back. But overall, I was you know, I, I just could have taken it or, or left it, you know, either way. So um, middle of the road for me. Shad, what about you? I'd say, yeah, I'm I'm a middle of the road, but like a little bit higher than a middle of the road. <laughs> uh, it, you know, there were a lot of really cool things. I felt like that was it was a cool introduction to Kang, though. I don't know. I don't know enough about Kang to say this for certain, but I felt like it was a little bit of a he could have handled Ant-Man and his crew pretty easily. It felt like a, a pretty small level hero going against a giant big gun and actually coming out pretty well ahead. Spoilers, uh, <laughs> to, uh, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things was like, well, that just, that felt a little off balance. The, the, it would have been like having Thanos right out the gate going to fight against, you know, black widow or something, you know, it, <laughs> it just, it felt a little off balance going into it, but I I liked the the CG seemed pretty good to me. Um, and the, the Modoc of it all was probably my my biggest disappointment. Is is Darren Modoc in the in no. canon? Okay, I didn't think no, so. No, no, yeah, okay. that was just so they could tie in though to the previous Ant Man, right? Movies. And that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, was uh, well, I, I, not to cut you off, but no, you're that, whenever so they they announced you know Modok, they didn't say Modok, right? They right. said she organism you know, designed only for killing, and I was sitting there. I put my hands in my head, my hands, and I said, "Please don't let this be Patton Oswalt. Please don't." Let this be <laughs> so I was so relieved it wasn't Patton Oswalt that, that I, I had taken anybody. <laughs> And probably if that thought hadn't crossed my head before, I probably would not have liked Darren as, but, and even some of his lines were nonsense, stupid. And the effect on his face was not great. Again, poor CGI, but I was happier with what we got than what it could have been. (laughs) So, um, but I I think I'm, I'm right in line with you guys that, you know, Jonathan Majors King is like, I'm I'm glad we're stuck with that for the next like few years. Like that mm. is that is a definitely a good thing. That's not a problem at all. That was another one of the CGI things. Whenever you know they tried to be comic accurate and put the blue filter over yeah. Jonathan Majors' face, and it looked terrible. Whenever they had that blue filter over his face, it just looked so bad. It's like his face was was enlarged to fill it, and it just didn't look right. And once it got removed, then it looked okay. But man, it just looks so bad when they put that blue on there. Uh, it's just uh, just another example of bad CGI. So <laughs> I want I did you know one of my big things, and I guess this is it gives totally spoilers, but like I wanted there to be a little bit of weight, you know, and I yes. felt like we were gonna have 
I felt like we were going to have a death of at least one major character mm-hmm. in here. And I was like, this makes sense. And this would make this movie even this would make this movie better yes. if we did. But we didn't, unfortunately. No. Well, one thing that took me out of it was that it seems like everybody and their brother and sister had this Ant-Man's powers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's like it's the Ant-Man family. Well, uh, it is. So yeah. it is, is literally, and they, mm-hmm. but still, they got all the same powers. Even Janet, I didn't realize she even had access to do that or the skills, but yeah. she did show early on she had some fighting skills. Well, that goes all the way back to the first movie, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the oh, now I lost my train, so go ahead and talk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, oh no, I was going back to somebody dying. Right, I was, you know, about two thirds of the way through the movie. I said, okay, Hank Pym's going to die. Um, Hope and Scott are going to get stuck in the quantum realm again, right? Yeah. And that's would give it some gravity, you know. Right. And, yeah. And uh, it would either a, you know, they they're probably pretty clearing going towards Young Avengers. Right. So that would yeah. move that would move Cassie to the forefront, you know, mm-hmm. for Young Avengers stuff, um, you know. And plus, we you know we get there's there's cast bloat in this series yes, now. There's absolutely. Too many characters they're having to share time with. It's like my, my big complaint with like the CD, C, CDW, CW, that's not a computer company. It's a, <laughs> the CW series is that those series, like the Flash started, it was the Flash for about two episodes mm-hmm. and then immediately blow it up with like there's five or six main characters right. that have powers and they're having to give time to all of those characters. Well, that's happening here in, in, um, yeah. in Quantum Media and Ant-Man as well. So it would have been nice to, you know, call that down a little bit just to, you know, and they had some good opportunities. Plus, get out of some of these contracts. You know, they do they need Michael Douglas around for another movie? I don't right. think so. So yeah, yeah. So the the Kang. Oh, wait, is that is this the multiple Kangs? Is that in the trailer or the the post credit? Is that that's part, in the, the post credit? Yeah. yeah, it's okay. in the middle. Right. It's in the first post credit scene. I couldn't remember because I remember at the end you got Scott walking down the sidewalk all happy. You know, yes, yeah. not even considered or. They don't yeah. think he's Spider-Man anymore. He's kind of yeah. being recognized. <laughs> he's Bugman bug or whatever. Yeah, he's Bugman, bug yeah. That's yeah. our for his lattes. You know, so yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it sounds like something I would do. They'll be happy, and then something just really like a big downer just dawns mm-hmm. on me, and you know he's thinking about, wow, there's a worse Kang out there, mm-hmm. and then I, then seeing the after credit, end credit, whatever it was with the, you know, infinite end number credit. of mm-hmm. yeah, infinite number of Kangs. I thought, wow, that's the Council of Kangs. Council of Kings. Is that something that's canon from the? Yes, comics? yeah, that is. And you have the the, I think you have the three that the three main ones that they showed, uh, Ramatut, all right, which is like a, a Egyptian. the Egyptian one, mm-hmm. like a predecessor. Then you have Immortus, who's kind of like the maybe yeah. the future Kang. The other one, I guess, is just kind of a regular Kang, though they didn't, you know, say that it was regular Kang. I don't know that it is a specific Kang. Kind of the weird cheering that was going on amongst the Council of Kang, though, was a little bit weird when they kind of panned across all yeah. different Kangs. That was, that was weird. But um, but it was kind of cool to see, you know, see all the timelines. And the, the second post-credit scene uh, with uh, Loki and uh, and uh, Owen Wilson, Mobius, uh-huh. Mobius, you know, from so we know we're going to get that for Loki season two uh, and probably some more Kang and Loki season two as well. So, yeah. Want to grade uh, it? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'll start. Uh, I'm going to be fine, very fine, which is 7.0. Um, 
not as good as the first two. It was the first of the Ant-Man movies that was actually like a superhero movie as opposed to a, a heist or a case car chase movie, right? Um, but I just it just had a little bit too much bloat, you know, and too many character, too much character sprawl, and and too many bad CGI scenes to to give it, you know, to rank it any higher. So, okay. I'm going to give it a fine minus 5.5 just because it's just what it is. It's just fine. Maybe a little bit less in my mind. And I'll go with the 7.0, the fine, very fine. I I would agree with that. Maybe for slightly different reasons, but all landed around the same, the same grade. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, let's go jump into comics, right? Since yeah. Is, yeah. That's what we want to talk about. So um, first up, we got uh, two things we want to talk about. First is X-Men God loves man kills. Uh, back from 1990, and then we're going to follow that up with uh, Dead Boy Detectives. I can't remember which volume this is. This is the Sandman Presents the Dead Boy Detectives, volume well, one. So, so it's a volume one because it has the extra stuff in the title. Right? That, makes it, <laughs> that makes it a little bit uh, makes it a little bit longer. So, um, Wait, Scott, you, you said, did you say 1990 or 1990? Oh, I thought that came out like 81 or something. I, you know, I double checked before we went on and i thought i saw 1990 but i may have you know got erroneous information i was uh, no it had to have been it had to have been 90 let me let me 83 is the copyright in the book okay so all right so i was yeah i guess got bad information then so i just it seemed that because in 90 i bought this origin i bought it off the shelf the original marvel graphic novel number five so i knew it had to be when i was buying stuff like that and in 1990, I wasn't. So, okay. So I must have picked up my copy then earlier than I thought because I didn't really start buying comics until I was, well, no, I started pretty young, but I wasn't able to get to an actual sh- comic shop for quite a while after I had been buying comics. So it was tough for me. To, it would have been tough for me to track this down, but I've had this for not since not long after it came out because I've got my original copy of this so i thought it was a little bit later but when i saw 1990 it didn't feel right but like oh okay i guess it was later than i thought (laughs) (laughs) well good okay so 83 all right i i I felt like it was supposed to be sooner earlier than that than 90 so good all right um find my notes here that's the wrong notes here's the notes (laughs) so this was as mike said this was originally marvel graphic novel number five and there's really only like three of these graphic novels that really, really stood out. There was the Death of Captain Marvel one. There's the first appearance of the New Mutants in number four. And then this one, number five, uh, Marvel graphic number five, God Love Man's Kills uh, by Christopher Claremont and art by Brent Eric Anderson. So how did you guys want to say anything about those creators before I dive into the synopsis? I'll probably talk about anderson's art when we get into our comments but okay uh, yeah i was i would say though i there was one other marvel graphic novel that i remember was as being good and that's uh emperor doom i don't know where that falls in in the the series of marvel graphic novels but i just remember that i remember i have it and i remember it being pretty darn good i just don't remember it may be good and a lot of them probably were good but they they didn't really have any impact, I feel like, down the road. But maybe yeah. I don't know that I've read Emperor Doom. Doom. It so, came out in 1987, so a little okay. bit later. So anyway, so our story starts with two young children being placed uh, chased through a playground by the purifiers. 
uh, where they are killed and strung up by the swings in the playground with the word Muty emblazoned on the seat. Uh, later, Magneto discovers their bodies and vows to make whomever is responsible for uh, pay. Uh, next, we meet up with Reverend Stryker, a preacher who's going to be the antagonist for the story as he reviews the skills and powers of the various X-Men. Uh, next, we meet up with Kitty Pride, who happens to get in a fight with a guy uh, who has nothing good to say about mutants and have because he's been influenced by Reverend Stryker and his uh, kind of his worldview. Uh, when Kitty is told that the words that he are using are just words, she asks her uh, black instructor how she would have responded if he had used the N-word. And we can talk about that part of it later on. But um, Xavier, who is returning from a televised debate with Stryker, and it, at the time it seems that the media is pushing Stryker's uh, take on the story more so than Xavier's, his vehicle is ambushed by the purifiers, and he, Cyclops, and Storm are taken captive. Uh, back on the X-Men grounds, Kitty and Ilanya, who is Colossus' sister, uh, discover the X-Men are being monitored and wait for whomever um, it is doing that to show up to fix their now damaged equipment, damaged by Kitty Pride. When the purifiers show up, Ilanya is captured, uh, but Kitty is able to sneak into the vehicle trunk um, and hitch a ride to wherever they are taking Ilanya. Um, back at the uh, professor's accident scene, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, and Colossus are attacked by yet another group of purifiers, and at the end of the fight, Magneto uh, intervenes. Magneto then tortures the purifiers to extract information and learns that they are working for Reverend Stryker and that their goal is the eradication of mutants. Uh, the captured professor, who is being mentally assaulted, uh, in an attempt to turn him to Stryker's cause, because ultimately Stryker wants to use him as a weapon in his crusade um, against mutant kind. Uh, we learn that Stryker's own wife delivered a mutant child, and the child died at birth, and whenever his wife asked for the child, Stryker broke his wife's own neck and then conveniently destroyed their bodies in a fire, fire caused by a vehicle accident. Uh, Kitty Pride manages to escape from the purifiers after being chased by gangs and more purifi purifiers and is later reunited with her X-Men companions who are there along with Magneto. Uh, back to the captured Professor X who is seemingly turned by Reverend Stryker and is tricked or convinced to kill both Cyclops and Storm. Uh, the X-Men attempt to rescue their captured teammates and do find that Cyclops and Storm are alive, but just barely. So seemingly Xavier was still in enough control to not kill some of his X-Men. Uh, at a large rally, uh, Stryker unleashes his master plan to use Xavier's mental powers to identify and kill all mutants. Uh, Magneto confronts Stryker, but Xavier, but Stryker uses Xavier to attack uh, Magneto. The X-Men enter the Mega Rally, and with the help of some tactical maneuvers by Cyclops and a feigned attack by Wolverine, they're able to knock Professor Xavier unconscious, thus rendering Stryker's uh, weapon useless. Uh, Stryker, however, picks up a discarded gun and threatens to shoot Nightcrawler, who he refers to as a demon, but when Kitty stands in the way, a police officer shoots and apparently kills uh, Striker. <clears throat> the X-Men back on their mansion grounds debate the future future of how mutants will then interact with humans and whether their methods will succeed or will Magneto's methods be necessary in the future. So there you go. My synopsis for God Loves Man Kills. Any major point you feel like I omitted in that synopsis? 
It was very good, the synopsis. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you mentioned that there towards the end that uh, Stryker inadvertently killed his own daughter, too, right? Uh, uh, it wasn't his daughter. Oh, I'm sorry. It was yeah. his, like, uh, protege. His num- yeah, yeah like his number daughter, one. Yeah. She's kind of in charge yeah. of the purifiers. I thought that would give us some things to talk about. Um, yeah, 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 yeah sure. but, but yeah, so she's in charge of the purifier. So whenever this weapon that he has designed that needs Professor Xavier's mental powers to unleash, what happens is everybody who's a mutant starts bleeding from the nose and ears. Yeah. And when his purifier number one uh, also starts bleeding from the nose and ears, instead of, you know, yeah. changing his mind, he just pushes her off the stage and she falls and breaks her neck and a uh, dies from dies from the fall but Mm -hmm. uh, there's also some you know uh, politicians who start bleeding you know people out on the streets because it has this i guess gradually expanding radius of impact so you have some unexpected people start uh, having adverse effects Mm -hmm. to the to this weapon that strikers made i will say um i don't but striker doesn't die Okay, so he does not die. Okay, I, I, you know, I read it and then I double checked and and it looked like he'd been shot in the heart. But well, there's a in the epilogue, there's a uh, a news report that says William Stryker was arraigned today on charges of arising out of the recent activities. Blah 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 blah. Thank you. I Uh, forgot about that part. Yeah. So he he lives to terrify again. uh, At the end, (laughs) I'm trying to remember if they used him at any point in the future. Um, but and that. That's what I didn't I did not realize that Stryker wasn't a bigger bad in the comics. Oh, being, yeah, this, you yeah. know, mainly a, a movie X-Men fan, like not really diving deep in on the comic side to, you know, mm-hmm. historically X2 is very much based yeah. on this this book. And so you get the feeling that Stryker is this thing that's been around. And then is he not very prevalent in the Wolverine Origins movie as well? Uh is he not the creator of no well it it's a different okay so it's a different take on the character so striker in there is more of a military guy he's a military guy which yeah not a military yeah that's true he is ex-military here they just don't they leave the religious part out of it for the movies mm -hmm. yes yeah (laughs) um so let's see Okay, we were going to talk about the artwork. Now, the one thing about this book is when you're used to artists like John Byrne on X-Men, no matter who else is doing it, it's going to be tough to uh, really super enjoy the artwork here. So I, it's it's not bad, but it's not what I'm used to seeing on an X-Men book. So I know, Mike, you said you had some comments about the about the artwork. Uh, yeah, I, even before I read, uh, I think it was in the, the after matter or the back matter of the book that Neil Adams was first approached by shooter to do the art, but because of differences, uh, or conflicts in the contract arrangement, he bowed out. I thought that this Brent Anderson looked, had a very similar style to Adams not as refined, I don't think, but I didn't have, and, and I'm not using the same baseline as you with Burn. Um, so <laughs> this to me seemed like same. pretty darn good artwork to me. It, it was it had also a very 80s feel, you know, you, using the t- the television and the news reporting, a la uh, the Dark Knight Returns and things like that to kind of give context. 
yeah, kind of so, yeah, narrate I, I the story. The yeah. Good. yeah, yeah. There was, uh, yeah, there were. I was, yeah, I've, I've seen X two, but man, it's been a long time ago, and I, I kind of found where some of the similarities and differences between the two, but I don't know that it's worth really mentioning. It's just that there was the he, he was the main villain in X two, and there was. Mm. Very much the same, but then again, there were significant differences as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I liked yeah. the artwork a lot as well. I was I was uh, a, a a big fan. Felt I agree with you completely. Very 80s, but this was this was the kind of like 80s book that I was I was digging on. I was like, okay, there's there's a, a fine line between uh, books that I enjoy from this era and books that I could just live without completely. And this. Uh, this one I really scratched that itch. I, I enjoyed the the artwork. I guess um, I, I'm not familiar with him as an artist, but he did essentially all of the Astro City uh, stuff. Was is the other big thing that he's known for? Is oh, I didn't know that. Is doing uh, doing that with Kurt Busiek. Oh, okay. Probably the best part of his art was the cover, and I, I mean I'm talking about the original mm-hmm. graphic novel cover. Yes. I think this reprint that I have, where it's just a black background, it doesn't even show all the X-Men. It just shows Nightcrawler, Cyclops, right. Wolverine, and Colossus. It doesn't show Storm or Kitty mm-hmm. Pride. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show all the, you know, the um, the image, the background images either. So yeah. I remember as a kid getting this, thinking, oh wow, this is this. I just love the structure of the cover. Each of the X-Men are kind of in their own pose, doing their own thing, and it looks like they're they were pieced together from different action scenes, but yet it's as if as if they do belong together. So I, I just always it just always resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is a very iconic cover. I mean, it's one people recognize, mm-hmm. and it's poster level. I, yeah. I'd love to have that as a poster. And another image that is maybe maybe unfortunately. I- iconic right it's one that sticks with you is that image on the third page where you have and it's really a very small image in the book but it's been reprinted so many times outside of it when this book is referred to where you have just the front of the young of the young boy's chest where it has muty written on the swing oh, right? oh yeah. yeah that image sticks with you as well you know it's mm, uh, sure it does yeah um that's one I definitely remember <laughs> from from this story from reading it the very first time. So yeah, oh that for the I mean the introducing or the introductory scene mm-hmm. is shocking. I yes. mean even now, mm-hmm. and I've mm-hmm. read this. That's in fact that's why I bought this 2016 reprint was so I could keep rereading without tearing up my original copy. So, <laughs> but I've read this several times, and that's saying something for me. I mean I don't have a ton of Marvel books, but this one's been on the top shelf for me. Um, I don't know. I don't have. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of no, uh, notes about this. Um, it. it I, I guess I should talk about this. The twenty. The special edition up on Marvel Unlimited mm. uh, does add in this little caveat thing. So it says this previously published content includes negative depictions of people or, or cultures these stereotypes were wrong then and wrong now social change is a journey and we must acknowledge where we've come from to build a more inclusive future and it's all strings from kitty pride using the n-word to try to prove a point with her instructor that you know she would feel differently if a different word had used had been used in the powers of words and this is of course you know mutant the whole mutant thing from pretty close to its beginning it's always been an allegory for racism 
Mm-hmm. And uh, this just kind of really drives home, trying to drive home that point um, that this is this is it, it's again just an allegory for racism. I don't know what else to say other than that. Well, and that's <laughs> one of my notes was this is such a good story, and unfortunately, is it's such a good story because it still feels relevant today. Yeah, like it's uh, yeah, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's so good because it's like yeah, that that still hits pretty hard. This book does, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's just like ugh. All right. It's it, it's it's good for all the wrong reasons, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's always interesting because, you know, what's the old saying about, you know, unless you've walked in someone else's shoes, you don't know exactly how they felt. Mm-hmm. So it's in, in this day and age, a lot of times you hear discussions about, well, OK, that may be bad for you, but I've also had this experience and it was bad for me. And it's almost like a competition. So right. uh, I know that this at the time. It was printed, obviously, um, and it it was to make that very pointed mm-hmm. point, <laughs> put the very fine point on it. Mm-hmm. And it, I can see you definitely. I mean, it's uncomfortable. Here it is, 2023, reading something like that said out loud, and it's just it is you know everything's relative as time moves on. So what may not have been quite as shocking in 1983 or 82 or whatever it was. Um, here it is, you know, 40 years later and it is more. Mm-hmm. So it was, in, right it wrong. was intended to be shocking at the time. And, yeah. and this was a, yeah. this was something I was trying to get on, get into like key collector and just kind of look at some of the points where it had been like a controversies and it was intended to be used to, stir up that controversial point is to, to try to make a point it's not yeah. you know not claremont being a racist it's trying to yeah it's a whole different thing language, than reprinting. Yeah. you know when dc first started talking about years ago they were going to print out or um put out a um reprint reprint volume of detective comics the the issues one through 26 so it was mm-hmm. all pre-batman but it was so rife with racist character character caricatures um that they decided against it now whether you believe in okay well it's got historical value and it should should be put out as long as there's a disclaimer or no it shouldn't be relived i don't know but it's it's that's a different thing than this because even at the time claremont was being deliberate with his writing Mm -hmm. i was trying to find some other examples of that in this list and i just none of them are jumping out at me right Mm -hmm. here at the at the start but uh well like there's a uh well of course i don't think this is claremont that's not claremont so that's not a good example but uh, i actually just came across this book in my collection not too long ago web of spider-man number uh eight where there's an anti-semitic freeze and and again it's to Mm -hmm. you know to try try to make the try to make the point about you know you know racism oh here's another one that's a burn x-men 190 i'm sorry not a burn a claremont uh, in an e- as X-Men 196, in an effort to make a point about the offensiveness of the word muty, sound familiar? Right? Mm-hmm. Kitty Pride uses an extremely offensive racial slur uncensored in X-Men 196. So uh, in, well, that's, that's Burn. Of course, Burn and Claremont worked together for a long time. Burn on FF, I think it was Burn, FF 278. Multiple uncensored panels clearly display an extremely offensive racist word and phrase. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's common for Marvel books at, during this time period to try to make a statement about racism. So yeah, hmm. I read this was a originally supposed to be a non 
outside of continuity X-Men story. But it's now, I, yeah, I don't know. I just read that yeah. somewhere. I, I mean, um, I, but I also, I also believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this was sort of the turning point of Magneto from being him being the standard, you know, dime a dozen bad guy, even though a very powerful bad guy, um, to a sort of a more morally ambiguous or uh, anti-hero. And I, yeah, and, yeah, and ultimately it leads to him even being at leading the X Men and the New Mutants for a while. So, mm-hmm. yep, yeah, absolutely. So, this uh, this story this makes the other books we're reviewing seem sort of like Charlie Brown's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It does. This is a lot absolutely. deeper, <laughs> way yeah. way deeper. So, um, I don't really have any other notes on this. Um, other than yeah, I mean, so why what else you guys got? I mean, this is not. I don't. I don't either. I mean, you'd have. This is something that if you wanted to, if we wanted to, you could do a whole episode, a long episode, breaking down every piece of it. But it's one of those books where you, it's like, where do you stop? Because mm-hmm. there is so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, I think I stopped fairly short of getting too far into the you know, the, 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 the breakdown of the, uh, of the story and, and some mm-hmm. of the thoughts that were behind it. I think we've covered it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, I mean, you could get into like the whole nineties, you know, eighties and nineties things where even though this was a special book, a graphic novel, it's like, they still have to reintroduce all the characters, you know, yeah. in case, because every comic is somebody's first comic book. Right. Sure. So, and this time they do it by having striker go through his files and give a history, a rundown of all <laughs> right. the various X-Men, you know, and, and then you've got the uh, oh gosh, there was something else. Oh the, the the danger room scene where they're practicing fighting. You know, it's just like that's always in an X Men book where you learn about the danger room and just all the little you know. I guess and tropes. even though it's yeah. a graphic novel, they split it up into four chapters that are oddly enough about twenty two pages a piece. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's oh, and like some of the characters that are name drops, like Senator Kelly. Well, he's important in like X Men 141 and 142, which is another one of the all time great X Men stories, which is Days of Future Past. Um, right. You know where you know going to the future and Sentinels of nearly eradicated mutant kind. So it's it's Claremont. You know, you had this relatively tight knit X Men universe before. You know it got blown up out blown out of proportion <laughs> and yeah. they kind of lost some of the focus and the, what you know, do you, uh, and, and I don't think I don't Atch, Did you read the, the extended cut or director's cut or whatever at all? No, all in my book, all I have, it's not worth it. I just, right. I, I wanted to bring that up just as we're closing out on this is that there is a right. director's cut, which has newly new pages on mm-hmm. the front end and the back end. Before the prelude and after the epilogue, oddly, uh, that are you know totally different artists. I don't know if Claremont wrote those words or or not, but uh, it is completely pointless whatsoever. Yeah. It does not do anything to help <laughs> the story along at all. Yeah, okay. it's basically like Kitty Pride saying, "Hey, this story happened." Yes. And then okay, that's what happened at the end. Yes. You know, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, what was it? And that's that's in the 2016 copy. No, no. it's a newer one. There was something then. called yeah. the extended cut that actually got released, I think, in 2020, and they just add those couple pages. I'm trying to see if I can find if they give me additional credits. 
Um, it was on I mean, Marvel Unlimited, so yeah. of course we chose that one instead. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually have, huh? I, it doesn't give any additional credits for those two pages, or that's more than two pages. Well, it definitely doesn't feel like Anderson's artwork, though. That's no, that's weird. Yeah, but again, it could be. It's more because I think like most of it's painted, and those are definitely pen and mm. ink. You know, those those extra pages. I feel yeah. like. Now it could be Anderson, you know, pen and ink in it instead of painting yeah. like he did the original. Um, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't say anywhere at the front who did mm-hmm. those extra couple of pages. So I could I mean I I guess I could see it maybe be an Anderson's with the eyes kind of look similar. Yeah. A, I always kind of focus on the eyes. Uh, I, I just wonder if it's just a different he did a different format and could be maybe he did it digitally or something and that would have changed a lot of the way it looked too (laughs) so one thing i noticed that gene gray is not in this story but i thought i remembered seeing her in x2 yeah Uh, okay well gene gray at the time of this story should have been dead Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. because the Dark Phoenix saga. Dark Phoenix saga should have already happened, and she hadn't been brought back to life for X Factor yet. Gotcha. So now I'd have to double check my dates on stuff on that. So uh, when did? How long did Kitty Pride go by the code name Ariel? Was that a, <laughs> she, she got more more code yeah. names than anybody? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not. Uh, that threw me off at first. Super long. What was the okay. other one? The early one. Shadow Ariel. Cat. Shadow Cat. No, before that, it was like a one word, like Sprite or something. Yeah, Sprite. Yeah, Sprite. Okay. And and then just Kitty. She was Kitty. Just Kitty (laughs) for a long time, you know. But, um, you know, then she wanted, then they grew up. She was Kate. You know, she was Kate Uh Pride instead of Kitty Pride. And, uh, yeah, she's just all been all over the place. Because she's just known as Kitty Pride. I mean. Yeah, exactly. None of of her hero names have really stuck with her. (laughs) You know, and I guess it's just that because she was introduced as Kitty Pride, she wasn't an X-Men initially, right? So yeah. she's just Kitty, and that's what hung around. So gotcha. I usually go by Shadowcat if I'm Shadowcat. I will recognize if I see Shadowcat, I know exactly who it is. But Ariel really threw me for a whirlwind for a second <laughs> until <laughs> yeah, I saw I'm the more... power set, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I know it. Okay, says. yep, yep. <laughs> it's just one of those. I and Kitty Pride is the best. It's just, yeah. Of course, you know, it's a terrible name, you know, whenever your superhero name is your real name, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. If you want to disguise. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We ready to grade this one? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go first. I'll I go. haven't written down my grade yet. I guess I need to. Oh, no. That, so, yeah. Uh, so I I really enjoyed this. Like I said, there's the my my 80s era things are hit and miss. Uh, Claremont is, uh, probably one of my favorite writers from that era though. So I, I really dug this. He's wordy, but you know, and I don't like wordy usually, but the way that, <laughs> the way that he's wordy works for me, I'm, a, I, it, it, it flows really well. Uh, and like I said, the artwork is awesome. I, I dug this story a lot. Definitely a classic X-Men, uh, story that's on my shelf. I, I gave it a 9.2 near mint minus. Mike, go ahead. Wow. Yeah, you're right near me. I was I decided on 9.0, very fine slash near mint. Um, I think it's nearly perfect. It's something uh, not only can you read over and over. I have read it over and mm-hmm. over, um, and it's uh, it's just got staying power and relevance no matter what year it is. So it's uh, like you said earlier, 
that can be unfortunate in some ways. Um, <laughs> I mean, but we're not quite into utopia, right? So I guess yes, shouldn't be too <laughs> overly uh, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. But yeah, a 9.0. I'm at a very fine plus 8.5. Uh, it is an outstanding X-Men story. I don't think it's the best X-Men story. But I do have, actually, I have two copies of this in my personal collection. I have the original graphic novel, and then I have the extended, our special edition, or whatever it was, that came out in 2020. I rebought it then to have a physical copy to read, though I did this time end up reading it on, on Marvel <laughs> Unlimited as well. But I actually read it once on the extended and once on the special edition. Yeah. So there you go. So uh, I got my use. Yeah, 8.5. Um, any person who's an X-Men fan absolutely needs to read this story. And for anybody who's a fan of superheroes who wants a little, you know, uh, meat to their story, then yeah, this is, yeah. this is, this is a story that you need to read mm-hmm. and, yeah. and to see what happens whenever you have a, the X-Men controlled by a, a single writer for a very extended period of time, you get to develop these characters and tell these stories over a longer period of time. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Shad, we're going to let you take the lead here. All right. So this was your suggestion on the uh, on the dead boy detectives. Yeah, um, I this is actually a the August 2001 was when the first issue came out of Sandman Presents Dead Boy Detectives, which is the volume one of the dead boy detectives kind of uh, things were on the third uh, reboot or whatever of it currently. Uh, so it seemed like maybe we should read kind of the start of Dead Boy Detectives. Uh, now, this is uh, written by Ed Brubaker, pencils by Brian Talbot, and inks by Stephen Lealoa, maybe, is how we would say his name? That's how I would say it. Okay. Uh, all of our cover, all four covers uh, are by Dave McKean, as is tradition for most of the Sandman universe. And uh, so, yeah, I'll get into the synopsis for issue one. Uh, we first meet Charles Rowland and Edwin Payne, our two ghost preteen boys who like to solve mysteries. Charles uh, died in 1990. Edwin died in 1916. Uh, we we get your kind of just out the gate. What I enjoy about this story is they've got a treehouse where they're setting up their new detective agency where, where they have their novelty private investigator licenses and uh, and their little girl crazy. Uh, they get a visit from Marsha who comes to ask for help because her friends are dying, but are also being aged to, a uh, kind of rivel, uh, shriveled up old kind of thing somehow in the process, uh, not knowing the, uh, the boys full story. Uh, she assumes that they're, they're just plain detectives and she doesn't really have time for their nonsense and moves on. The boys continue on the case anyways, visiting a morgue and witnessing the shriveled up body for themselves and reading the autopsy report. In the report, there is mention of a crazy old lady near the river that was spotted near the body. They decide to track her down and ask some questions. Down by the water, they learn the name of the crazy old lady, Mad Hetty, and pay her a visit. Um, for those keeping score at home, Mad Hetty was uh, first appeared in Sandman number three, uh, the issue called Dream a Little Dream of Me. She tells them that they need to go down to the tube tunnels. And that is where the killer is hunting his victims. So they head down to the train tunnels and discover an abandoned area where they put all the old subway trains and it has become a place for many homeless people to go. Edwin and Charles spot a mysterious person lurking in the shadows and chase after him. They lose him, but 
run into Marsha, who is looking for the same man. After a close call with a passing subway train, the three of them come face to face with the man they are trying to track down. That's issue one. I don't know if there's okay. anything really to say about it. <laughs> I've got I've got some things. I mean, they, they're okay. sort of like pre. I mean, they're um, in advance of issue one. I first I want to talk about the cover. I I'm I'm a big fan of Dave McKean, but it's it's his painted work I realize that I like so much in in his Arkham Asylum and. Mm. Black Orchid, and I don't know that I'm huge a huge fan of this. I don't know what he if it's how this is. I don't know how this is created. Usually they're be very the mixed media. Yeah, um, I'm not a huge fan of it, but then again, I'm I'm spoiled by the painterly style. And you know, I even had to look up what's you know try to sound like I knew what I was talking about with art, but. I, I, you got cubism, you got dadaism, and then you got surrealism. I think that this falls more into these covers fall more into the surrealism than mm. any of the other categories. But um, so anybody that's impressed with that analysis, please write. I was. Uh, <laughs> I'm writing you right now. At least, at least be impressed that I did, took the time to look it up. <laughs> um, Just the uh, email podcast yeah. at birdcomics.com and put Mike, attention Mike, in the subject line. <laughs> There you go. Uh, my other comments are more a question for Shad. I like the on the interior are by Talbot. He he doesn't color the irises of the eyes of the dead, yeah. dead boys. Is that consistent with the previous uh, style or depictions in in Sandman? Um, I I don't recall that. Be I feel like that is a specific to him uh mm -hmm. touch to it. I don't recall them being kind of white or clear eyed. Uh, it in, just seems like a good, it's a subtle yeah. different differentiation between them and, and the, the, you can tell immediately that there's kids. something different about these people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Otherwise I, their mannerisms are like accurate to that of, you know, adolescent boys. I mean, one minute they're immature and they're bantering. And then the other minute they're actually trying to be, you know, doing detective work and stuff. So, right. uh, yeah, I think this is Drew Baker doing it doing a good job but it's also that i think he's trying to write not in his typical style he's writing like a gaming type book it's not his usual like detective noir yeah um so that's about it except i'm not a huge fan of talbot's art but it's not like it doesn't doesn't break the story for him right or anything yeah the uh the new iteration of dead boy detectives the one that's currently ongoing or not ongoing mm -hmm. it's a it's a mini series but uh they don't have the white eyes for sure. Cause I just pulled up one of the issues just to see mm. uh, what the artwork looked like. And they have normal kind of black beady eyes is what it looks like. But I think everybody on the, in that book has black beady eyes. Um, let me go into issue two. Oh, Scott had anything to oh, you go right on ahead. All one, right. One last comment about that yeah. last scene with where we were introduced, even though it wasn't named yet, the Marquis de Marquez. Yeah. It's, I mean, how much more stereotypical of a villain can you get in design? <laughs> right. I'm like, right away, I'm like, oh, there's your bad guy. And I'm like, oh, no, surely not. Surely not. But I don't want to spoil the rest of the story. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> so we start off issue two with the man calmly introducing himself as Francisco Marquez or the Marquis de Marquez. 
He says he isn't the murderer and walks away. <laughs> the boys believe him at face value, though Marsha isn't so sure. They lose him. It's a wonder that these are actually detectives. Uh, they lose him in the dark of the tunnels, though, and they get split up from Marsha. She gets caught by the police, presumably for being in the, on the subway track. So they didn't really address why she gets grabbed by the police. Uh, the boys leave the subway station and head to their treehouse now with no more leads for their case. When they arrive to the treehouse, though, Marquez is there waiting for them. He explains to them that they are looking for a man named Gil Darius, who originally fought alongside Joan of Arc in 1429. Darius longed to live forever and became connected uh, connected as a murderer, a deviant, and uh, also known for drinking blood. Darius began to work in necromancy and discovered how to suck the essence from children to live longer and feel more youthful. Ten years after Darius's supposed execution, Marquez's ancestor began investigating the mysterious murders, and this began centuries of a cat-and-mouse game between Darius and Marquez's family lineage. Since Darius has a penchant for kids, Marquez suggested the dead boys be the bait since they can't die anyways, and then he leaves. The next day, the boys are walking around town when they become when they come across an ambulance taking another body of another kid or a body of another kid. Marsha is there as well, and they encourage her to hang up the posters of Marquez since they know he is not the killer, and perhaps that will keep her out of harm's way. The boys visit Marquez at his home to discuss their next steps since they are working together now, and Marquez reveals that Darius's now Darius now goes by the name of Robert Gadling. Oh, Hob. Oh, Hob. Okay, so, I don't know, hang on to your seats. You're going to be impressed again. But I looked up the French pronunciation of this character, <laughs> and it's a soft G. Okay. Gilles de Reis is how, something like that. <laughs> but it's, it is definitely a soft G. Okay, um, Gilles not, de Reis. Not, yeah, Gilles de Reis. But I, anyway, there you go. I liked it. Um <laughs> Uh, Robert Gadling or Hob Gadling does appear in Sandman 13. This is his first appearance in Men of Good Fortune, uh, which we saw the the, the uh, in real life version of that in the Sandman series this past year. All right. Issue three. Uh, oh, Marquette. Oh, 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 go ahead. Sorry. This is the issue where they bring in. They talk about Jitteres's uh, background of being a serial killer. But it's yeah. also it, it's where there's actual historical. Re- accuracy. Oh, was that I real? You guys, yes, that whole. Um, yes, he was an actual child killer that was big into the occult. Um, I mean, we're talking serial killer level, and wow. uh, you know, of course, they also had references to Joan of Arc mm-hmm. um, and Dracula and stuff like that. Now, those are more mythical or at least embellished a bit, but I I think there was enough of it to impress me uh by using i mean using a real character from history cool i did not realize it nor would i have thought to look it up so i'm glad Mm -hmm. i've got you to to do that (laughs) so yeah i'll be your little encyclopedia a little historian yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right Issue three, uh, Marquez teaches Edwin to unlock the power as a ghost that he didn't know he had to locate a person by looking at a photo of them. He does this with a photo of Hob Gadling. Edwin fails at first, though, looking at Hob's wife or unintentionally looking at Hob's wife in the photo instead and going to her gravesite. 
While they're going through the lesson, Charles wanders Marquez's house and notices that the photos and paintings of Marquez's family throughout time all look a little too close to the current Marquez's looks. Marquez then assigns them both some homework and sends them off. Edwin learns a spell to subdue uh, opponents while Charles practices locating people by just focusing on their name. No picture needed. The next night, Marquez has Charles locate Hob, and then they go to his home to capture him. Edwin's spell, spell doesn't work, so Marquez busts through the door and casts the spell instead. They take Hob to Marquez's dungeon. Marquez says that he has to perform a ritual on Hob to kill him and sends the boys away. With the boys gone, Marquez explains that he has figured out a way to steal Hob's immortality and will perform the ritual at tomorrow's full moon. The next day, the boys are walking around when they run into Mad Hetty, who explains to them that they have been brainwashed into following Marquez's orders with the coin he's given them as a down payment for their services. She also points out that all of the homeless children are missing now. So far, it feels like I'm reading a comic version of the Hardy Boys, and they have to <laughs> be dead. Just yeah. because, I mean, it's kind of refreshing in a way because it's not overly complicated, but it's also like, I don't know if I'm the target audience that can get the most out of it. Um, it's yeah. got just enough, though, that I'm I'm not put off by it or anything, but I'm just thinking, well, it just seems like I'm not quite the right demographic for this. Oh, the mystery is just right on the nose. It's just, it's so, like, oh, right. oh yeah, it it's is so <laughs> obvious that it's just like, and, and, yeah. and as, I mean, I guess we'll get into it a little bit more with issue four, but it's like, he's training them to capture him this whole time. <laughs> and like, it's so like every part yeah. of it is just an, an obvious plot point, but it's, it's still fun. And, and I think good. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I think is interesting about how the story pulls off uh, for me is just like, it's so obvious and kind of dumb, but it actually like at the end of it, I still feel satisfied. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. it's it, I wouldn't even say it's quite as complicated as maybe a Harry Potter book. <laughs> no, but it's got that same. I mean, it, it can appeal to, I think, young adults and, yeah. and, and adults both. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so, like I said, they did they did a good job of at least putting enough. I mean, because there's there is some sort of violent and graphic scenes in the, in the oh, stories. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, I literally have supernatural Hardy boys in my notes. Just, <laughs> just, that's all. I'm do you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should let you talk a little bit more. We've been hogging. No, the I, mic, you know, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually having trouble getting logged in to actually follow along with the story. So uh, oh. that's I wonder reason why I'm being quiet. So, <laughs> gotcha. Well, I'll wrap up with issue four here. Uh, so issue four, Matt Hetty tells the boys that they should imagine Marquis Marquez and, and, uh, who is probably the bad guy. And, uh, and, uh, since he, he is trying to steal Hobbs immortality and he will be doing it during the full moon tonight. And he probably took all of the kids for part of the spells as well. She's like, it's all right here, boys. Why don't you just try to figure it out? You, you, you got all the tools, go ahead and do it after trying to find Marquis Marquez's home. Uh, which has now been magically hidden from them. They are reminded that they know Marquez, Marquise, Mar- Jesus, Marquise, Marquise's real name, uh, Gilles de Rice. Did I say that? <laughs> How did I do? <laughs> Much closer. Oh, good enough. <laughs> and uh, and can find him that way. They end up in his dungeon and locate the missing kids. Before de Rice has a chance to use Marsha in his spell, Edwin finally is able to conjure the subduing spell. They free, they get Marsha free, but before they can rescue Hob, Darius comes too. Then Mad Hetty breaks in, but she captures the boys instead of helping them. 
she convinces Darius that he should steal the boys' essence instead of Hobbes since they were able to refuse death. Darius agrees and performs the ceremony on the boys, but all according to Mad Hetty's plan, since the boys are dead, all Darius takes is their death and shrivels up. He is still alive, though. Mad Hetty says that she has been waiting a long time to take care of him and tells them to leave so she can finish him off. Back at the treehouse, the boys apologize to Hob for capturing him when they are interrupted by a visit a visit from Marsha, who came to came by to thank Charles and introduce him introduce him to their new her new boyfriend. His name is Randy, which Charles says is more like a description than a name. <laughs> <laughs> After they mourn over Charles's heartbreak, they give Hob back the photo they were using to locate him, which is of him and his late wife, and they ask him how he became immortal. His response is by simply not dying. Yeah, that's pretty accurate too. <laughs> yeah, refusing to die. That's right. Well, whether that, I think it had something a little bit more to do with Morpheus than just yeah, saying he refused Hobbs to got die. a little bit of an end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, it's true. But that, that's one of the things. That's I, one thing about I, this is it's an extension of the existing Sandman universe. Yes. Yeah. And and I did not realize until you suggested this and we talked about it that these were the the characters. From that one issue of mm-hmm. Sandman, you know, at the concert, the the school for boys, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. I I'd never, I did had no idea. I had no oh, idea what, okay. what they were, and, and they don't, they're not the Dead Boy Detectives. No, then. they're not they labeled become, at that point. Yeah. yeah, they become the Dead Boy Detectives later on, you know. So, and that's the other in, incorporating of the other some other characters from uh, the Sandman universe into the story, kind of like kind of glues it in. It's like this little adjacent piece that yeah. you, you can either take it with all the rest of the Sandman universe or just play with this one little chunk of it. You know, you don't yeah. have to know all that history. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, did you find it odd that Hob Gadling actually cried out to Morpheus or to dream for assistance whenever he was, you know, bound and about ready to be killed? I mean, he survived all of these centuries without Morpheus's, or dreams intervention. So I, that kind of struck me as, I mean, just unusual. Maybe, maybe he's not had a need to do that. Before. Yeah. He maybe he hasn't been that close to it or I'm yeah. the other thing being that maybe it's because he was dealing in the supernatural, supernatural. that, that, that yeah, was kind of where I went to it. it is if he was yeah. just held at gunpoint, he probably wouldn't call out for Morpheus, but that's to true. be to be getting ready to be sacrificed in a weird ritual, it might might seem like well, it's no better time than now to call the dream card, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Marcia, you know, she was, you know, those Charles was just fretting and stewing over her, you know, maybe actually reciprocating his fondness for her, and uh, then she introduces him to her actual boyfriend, and yes, it shut him up pretty quick. I thought that was cool. <laughs> and her hairstyle, I. This totally, this is, if this is like set in real time in the early 2000s, that hairstyle reminds me more of the 80s punk kind of, and maybe this, because it's set in Britain, maybe it's a different yeah. um, the hairstyles for, for girls then. I don't know, but it was definitely, definitely that Brit, and you know, her boyfriend's got that little shaved burr head with a little curly cue uh-huh. in the front. So um, just a little, couple little notes I made. Now she shows up though in future Dead Boy Detective stories, right? Um, I feel like yes. It's been a while since I've read the volume two okay. run, like the twelve issue of that. Uh, but I do. I mean, Charles is definitely, if I remember right, hung up on a girl 
Uh, and, and I think that's kind of his mo is that he's always the one that's a little bit more girl crazy than Edwin is. Mm. Well, uh, I think but, like Ed, I feel like I always feel like it's played that Edwin is hung up on Charles and Charles is hung up on a girl. Oh yeah, yeah, that could be I, absolutely. Yeah, there was a couple. Mm-hmm. panels that there were statements made that made me think that too yeah. that would make sense yeah uh but yeah i i wonder if i'd i'd have to go back and look but i wonder if marcia is 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 the one that reoccurs and it's not just another because i think it's even a blonde so it it if if memory serves right well i just know whenever the dead boy detectives show up in season three or four of doom patrol on hbo yeah. max it's the two dead boy detectives and a and a girl and okay well. okay yeah, yeah, so I just I was just wondering if that's just like the common group for these stories. So. Yeah. Did you did you say Doom Patrol? Uh-huh. Yeah. They well, showed one that episode either. one episode of Doom Patrol. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm and gonna I've watched watch that it. one episode. Yeah, I've watched that. Yeah, one. I've watched <laughs> the first two episodes or two or three, but I haven't gotten back to it. I can't tell you. I've watched it all. I can't tell you it's worth it. But that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to. Yeah, okay. I'll start chase. I'll start chasing. No tangents. I, I no need, tangents. I don't need to chase that. So. I'll, okay. I'll, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't have any other thoughts on this except for grading it. Yeah. yeah. I. That's. I mean, my notes were it's not particularly deep or not particularly intense, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's. I just. I just like how it tied in with that Sandman universe, and okay. and it was good because I just had finished. I I had read Sandman previous. I had well, I'd, I'd started Sandman, got through seventy five percent of it and stopped. So then it's like, okay, I'm gonna sit down and read Sandman. So I had just finished reading Sand rereading Sandman, and then of course, then when I read the issue with the with the Dead Boys, it's like, oh, okay, there's their first appearance. Right. right? Okay, so that didn't it didn't really. I guess it just let me know where those characters were heading, yeah, not that, makes that sense. changed anything in that initial story. Yeah. Uh, so it's it was kind of nice to just kind of piece all those all those stories together. So. <laughs> yeah, and what you're saying, Mike, about the hairstyle, I wonder if because they don't really say the year that this takes place and mm-hmm. how how near or far it could have been from their first appearance, though it was published in one. True. The timeline could be shortly after Charles dies. It could be set in the mm-hmm. early '90s still. Um, could be, yeah. I, it's, so it's a, I didn't think about that, but it could totally be that. I mean, I'm not a f- fashion mogul here, <laughs> but uh, it just didn't. It seemed out of. It's still, like her boyfriend seemed more like one of those, you know, Batman from Dark Knight Returns. You know, his <laughs> yeah. uh, mutant or, or his his uh, thug goons or whatever yeah yeah it just but um yeah yeah absolutely well i'll go ahead are you ready to grade yep i'll i'll go ahead and uh i'll be i'll i'll be the fool i'll go ahead and put out here that i I graded as a 9.0 very fine near (laughs) mint uh because i just i i loved it it's just it it's the the simplicity of this book that like like scott says ties in with my one of my my well not even one of my favorite my favorite series comic series Sandman and uh, so anything that that does it well and ties into everything right there it, it can't go wrong for me so I'm into it and I and I like things that are a little bit uh, simplistic I, I like the I mean I I'm a current subscriber to the Gargoyles and Darkwing Duck comics so uh, <laughs> I, I don't need something super deep so this is this is good for sure sure. Uh, do you want to go, Scott? I'll, I'll go ahead and go. I feel like I'm gonna be the low, low guy here. 
Um, so I gave it a 6-0, fine, right? Because it's it's good. It's not something I'm keeping on my shelf. I I there's not it, there's a very small set of people that I feel like I could recommend it to, mm-hmm. right? So you either have to be into like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, right? Or you've got to uh, be pretty heavily steeped in the Sandman and want to read everything that has anything to do with Sandman. Mm-hmm. But it it's so it's not it's not something I'm going to keep, but it's not. It's not something I would steer somebody away from if they thought they wanted to read it either. So that's why I'm at fine 6.0. It's it's right there on the cusp. I don't regret reading it, right? I, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be super, like, if if I have a choice between reading the next volume of Dead Boy Detectives <laughs> and something else, I'm probably going to go with the something else right, over Dead yeah. Boy Detectives, you know, yeah. It's a good way of putting it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm in between you two. I'm at a 7.5, very fine minus. Exactly. I, split the difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and that was that was I picked that before um, before you guys even said. And so I think that it's I'm with you on that. That I probably won't buy any subsequent stories unless it's just I've we've got a specific reason to. But then again, I um, I enjoy sometimes the simplicity of a just an escapist type little story. It's you know, I don't have to have a bombastic, multi-layered, 17 subplot story to enjoy it. Uh, in fact, probably I lean more the other direction when it comes to storytelling. So, um, so 7.5, I think, is a uh, is my assessment. All right. Well, should we uh, CLZ shake to shake wrap up. this uh, wrap this episode up? So. I got mine out here and ready to go, so I'll let the light adjust there and shake. And oh, big surprise! Oh, hey, at least though, <laughs> it's Micronauts issue volume one, issue one. So it Whoa. is the very first, what? very first issue of Micronauts. <laughs> All right, so this was the one that got me started on on Micronauts, right? So this is actually from. Uh, Oh, gosh, from 79. <laughs> so it's been around for a while. And I've talked about Micronauts before on these CLZ shakes multiple times. Right. But, uh, you know, there was the toy line associated with it. At the time, you had all the comics with the toy lines. You get things like G.I. Joe and Transformers and He-Man all had to have accompanying mm-hmm. comic books. And ROM is another good example of that. And sometimes the comics were more successful than the toy lines. So, uh, but yeah, this one, the one that started it all for Micronauts. <laughs> I've got a graded copy. I had multiple raw copies of this issue and Michael Golden interior art, why they didn't let him do the cover. I don't know, but there you go. It is a Dave Cockrum cover though. So, I guess okay, that's, that's good too. That's good too, but it's not Michael Golden. But yeah. Right. <laughs> Who's next? Let me go. Shad. Shad. All right. What is it? Harley Quinn. Oh. Volume two, number one. It's also oh. number one. This is the uh, the start of the Amanda Connor Connor run. Okay. Uh, run. Yeah, the their first one. I I feel like they did a couple of. Maybe number one, they I feel like they rebooted it maybe once again after that. I don't know. I, I can't remember if it had a reboot with New 52 or it if it survived. I don't remember exactly. This so. is this is the 2013 release. So that would have been post 52 or during the 50 New 52. Yeah. Okay. During so maybe it survived. It may have survived rebirth. I think is what. Oh, okay. Happened. Gotcha. Yeah. This is the. Uh, this is actually a key issue. Uh, 
a, a low key issue, not a not one of them golden keys, but it's the first team appearance of the roller derby team, the Brooklyn Bruisers, <laughs> as well as the first appearance of Queenie and Big Tony. Um, uh, I, I I liked this series when it came out. I was I, I'm a Harley Quinn fan from time to time, if done right. And I feel like Amanda Connor uh, does Harley Quinn pretty good. And uh, this was her like she broke up from with Joker and was moving to mm-hmm. the city and all that. And uh, so, yeah. I dig this one. Yeah, is that the is that the one where she's is it this is that one is that the yeah that's one, the right yep. one? yeah yeah I have that in my collection as well. So, uh-huh. And I read most of the Palmiotti Connor run yeah. on Harley Quinn. Yep. Red Tool and oh yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are they doing anything these days? I mean they they are I'm, an actual couple in real life. Yeah right? yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I know I see both of their names do it. Well, Amanda Connors uh, does. Uh, I know variant covers for uh, the Gargoyle, Gargoyle series. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Seen her recently. That's all I see re- her really on is the variants, but the I haven't variants. seen Palmiotti in a while. But I enjoyed them as a team uh, when it comes to the, you know, the creative mm-hmm. part of it. Yes, I won't retell my Amanda Connor Power Girl sketch story at this time. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm a shaking. Okay. All right. Well, uh, this is uh, Superman Family number 212. This is about, I'd say, 10 issues away from its cancellation. It was a dollar comic released in 1981. You got Supergirl on the cover. Uh, some of the other features were, you know, the Mr. and Mrs. Clark Kent, you know, from Earth Two, uh, that E. Nelson Bridwell uh, wrote. They they were kind of interesting, but otherwise it was just. I mean, if you're a Superman Bronze Age completist, that might be the only reason you would get this. <laughs> Other than it, you know, Dollar Comics were kind of cool back then because you got a whole lot of content. So. Uh, was it yeah, a hundred page dollar comic or was it? A oh, no. They, oh, God. By now they were probably it doesn't even say on the front here, but I I would bet it's only maybe 48 pages by now. Oh, OK. By this time, you know, they they when they were, you know, I think maybe I don't know. It just they just got they got smaller page counts as time went on. All right. Um, Chad. Do yeah. you know where we're going with episode number 155? 155, we're going to cover The Accelerators, Volume 1, and Justice League, A League of One. So, uh, sad then, if they wanted, somebody wanted to reach out to you, where would they do that at? Uh, you can find me most likely on Facebook. Uh, you can just look me up, Shad Schubert, S-H-A-A-D-S-C-H-U-B-E-R-T. And, of course, look up my band, Shad and Thomas. We've got some shows coming up in March and April. Mike? Well, you can reach me either on email through the the podcast, uh, well, podcast at birdcomics.com or m.atchison90 at gmail.com or on Twitter, you can get me at MikeAtchison5. And I'm Scott Reed. You can find me at bergcomics.com. And my first show of 2023, March 11th in Evansville, Indiana. It's just a Southern Indiana uh, comic book show. And it is nothing but comic book dealers. 18 comic book dealers. None of the other, I'll dare I say, nonsense that gets associated with other conventions. Right? Ooh, I said it. (laughs) So just 
comic books. So it's worth uh, even a four-hour drive um, just to come in and buy comics. You don't have to pay to get in. You get to look at all the tables, spend all your money on comics. Uh, it's an excellent show. He, he does it two or three times a year. So March 11th, getting things started. And we'll be back uh, soon with episode 155. so busy doing synopsis i haven't done an intro oh no oh, actually no. i like your lighting in your room actually you've got yeah. like half of your face is like kind of dark and shadowy and the other half is <laughs> lit up it's just call me eclipso yes <laughs> i don't know my my view it's well it's not real black or dark but it's just because this lamp here's it, yeah on my right you're a little shadowy i like it <laughs> i always say i've got a face for radio and, and a voice for newspapers oh do we was there any news we wanted to talk about before do we want to talk about the flash trailer I didn't watch it. I guess I can watch it real quick. Uh, you didn't watch The Flash trailer? No, I didn't watch The Flash your, trailer. As your, yeah, you can say something about your favorite uh, DC actor, Ezra Miller, oh. which is, he's actually no. your favorite. Yeah, because Jason Momoa. <laughs> I, did, I did see online, whether it's a reputable source or not, I don't know, but they said that the, what do you call it, the trial runs or the... Oh, yeah. Like people uh, they sent, yeah, people they send the movie to mm-hmm. got pretty Aquaman, the Lost Kingdom, got really stinky reviews, so <laughs> they're in a panic. Oh, boy. They just need to just release it and just not worry about it. Don't put any more money I can go on me. If they never release it, I, I can truly say that I won't miss it. I won't miss it either. I won't miss it, and they put it out, and it's terrible. I won't be surprised. If it is okay, I'll be like, okay, well. I didn't, I mean, I didn't hate the first one, but I didn't really like it either. I just thought it was, I, you know, Scott always talks about, you know, Momoa. I think my biggest pain or biggest aggravation was the Nicole Kidman eating that stupid goldfish. I'm like, what stupid joke is that? It's the same stupid joke as when the one guy puts his head in the toilet bowl. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yes, it's juvenile. Mm-hmm. Juvenile. And especially with Mira, because Mira's like, supposed to be a queen, right? I mean, well, and, 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 I don't know. It wasn't Mira, it was Atlanta, his mother. Yeah. Not the Aquaman, supposed to be a king. I mean, Jane offers to pee on the, help pee on the artifact to get you water. You know, it's like, really? Come on. Yeah. It was a stupid. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Stupid, stupid, stupid. stupid.